Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to our time of study in God's Word. We're continuing today our series through the book of Psalms today, looking at Psalms 68, 1 through 18. And the title of our study today is Rise Up, O Lord. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first for your Word, which is living and active. It penetrates into our hearts because you are the God who sees all and knows all. And you, and yet, because of Christ, you love us. And so, Lord, as we come now to your holy, precious word, Lord, you, you are going to show us just how amazing and even more about how great you are in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation that we are living in. Lord, we, we pray that you would open up eyes and open up ears to hear the message of Christ revealed in the Word. And Lord, as we aim to be faithful to your Word, help us, Lord, show us the wicked ways that remain in us, that we might walk in the way that, that you have paid for us as defined and outlined in your Word. So we thank you, Lord, for your Word, which is which is truth. It's not just a proposition to believe, but Lord, it paves the way. It gives us a whole way of seeing and knowing and enjoying and loving the Savior and Lord who purchased for us such a freedom and such a joy that is only found in Christ alone. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you are truth and that the truth resides in your word and that it is knowable and that we can come because of Christ through the shed blood and the resurrection of our Lord to you now in prayer, asking for your help, asking for you to illuminate your word by your spirit to us, that we might know you more and grow more in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Today we're going to look at the first 18 verses. And here they are. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before the Lord. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earthquake, the heavens pour down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. 
The women who announce the news are great hosts. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalaman. O mountains of God, mountains of Bashan, O many peaked mountains, mountains of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountains? As the mount that God desires for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousand upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. May God bless not only the preaching of his word, but also the hearing of his word. In September 1812, the French army under Napoleon Bonaparte entered the Russian capital city, Moscow, only to withdraw a month later and to begin the disastrous retreat that destroyed his army. Before the brief occupation, a rumor spread that the French had placed powder magazines beneath the the cathedral of the Kremlin, designed to explode when the gates before the altar were opened. Despite the perceived danger, a great crowd filled the cathedral for the worship service to celebrate the French retreat. The crowd was hushed as the metropolitan of Moscow approached the gates, opened them, and passed through safely. In that moment of triumph, the metropolitan opened the Bible and read the opening words of Psalm 68 in a loud voice. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. Seventy years later, the Russian court commissioned an overture to commemorate the the victory over Napoleon. Peter Tatosky's 1812 overture would become one of his best-loved and best-remembered pieces, ending with the firing of the cannon in time with a soaring theme. Psalm 68 may be considered King David's 1812 overture, It is described by H.P. Liphold as a hymn of victory of the church militant. This psalm commemorates the pinnacle of David's achievement in bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion at the city of Jerusalem, which David had captured. David understood this festival occasion to mark the triumphant conclusion of Israel's Exodus journey. Begun when Moses departed from Mount Sinai with the Ark of the Covenant leading the people of God. And only when Israel had been settled under the divinely appointed kingship with the throne of God resting on his holy mountain, did Israel fully enter the blessings that God had promised her in the land of Canaan. Psalm 68 looks back on the journey from Mount Sinai, celebrating God's salvation, and looks forward to the victory and the peace in the days to come for the people among whom God would dwell. So first, let's consider God shall arise. And the reason that God shall arise is Moses led Israel out from Sinai with the Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of God's throne on earth going before the people. Every day Moses cried aloud as the ark set forth, as in Numbers 10.35, which says, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. 
And when the ark rested after a day's journey, Moses then called out, <coughs> Return, O Lord, to the 10,000 of Israel, as he did in Numbers 10.36. Each step of Israel's exodus wanderings as God led the people through the desert for 40 years, it began and ended with these words. And now, as David brings up the ark to its resting place on Mount Zion, completing the exodus several hundred years after it began, he announces in Moses' terms his continued confidence in God in verse 1 of Psalm 68, which says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. That's because the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant on Mount Zion, it proved that Moses' prayers had been answered and it gave a strong incentive for new generations of the people of God to call on the Lord for salvation. And now when it comes to the scattering of the enemies of God, David is perfectly confident that God will succeed. Using metaphors that describe an overwhelming power in verse 2, which says, As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. God's people are often dismayed by the apparent power of opposing forces. And when God arises, these threats are seen to be no more than a smoke that is dissipated by a strong wind or as a wax that melts away in the presence of fire. And this reminds those who trust in God not to be dismayed in earthly opposition, since the Creator has pledged Himself to our protection and to our care. And when the Israelites had the Red Sea blocking their path, God made a passage through the waves. As Pharaoh's chariots drew near to strike, God drowned them in His wrath. John Calvin reminds us there is no such strength in our enemies as we suppose. And David shows us how easily God can overthrow the machinations of his enemies. New Testament believers in Christ today have even greater reason for this confidence in the faithful of David's time. Charles Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, as he's known, says this, We see Jesus, the appointed atonement, clothed with glory and majesty, and before his advance, all opposition melts like snow in the sun. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And when he comes by his Holy Spirit, conquest is the result. But when he arises in person, his foes shall utterly perish. And now not only does the Lord scatter his enemies, but he tends his hands to reach out to gather his people in safety and comfort. Psalm 68, 5-6 says this, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles a solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. And in keeping with his gracious character, God is tender towards those who are afflicted. He takes those who lack the earthly provision of faithful fathers. When they turn to him in faith, he provides them with his paternal love affirmation and the provision that they need widows may be cast off by society but god takes notice of them for protection the israelites in egypt were bereft of a true home and comfort and so god brought them to the promised land granting them a prosperity that far exceeded their imagination and so too does god make the church today a place where castoffs may find acceptance and where the fatherless and the widows find family in the gospel of his son, God grants freedom to those imprisoned by sins and blesses the souls of believers with eternal life. 
Next, let's consider joyful praise for the saving God. It turns out that this theme of God's power to scatter his enemies and to lift up his downcast people is precisely the theme of 1 and 2 Samuel. The Bible books that focus on King David's life and ministry. Early on in the narrative, Hannah rejoices in her song in 1 Samuel 2, 7-9, saying, The Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. You see, as David celebrated his crowning achievement and settling the Ark of the Covenant, he could look back on how God had done for him the very things for which Hannah prayed, raising him up from obscurity, defending him from the attacks of King Saul, empowering him for victory, uh, enthroning him in power and glory. In fact, Hannah's song was the model for the, mag- the, for the famous Magnificent, later sung by the Virgin Mary in the anticipation of Jesus' birth. That's because Mary understood the Messiah's coming in similar terms to what David is teaching us in Psalm 68. And we see Mary's Magnificent in Luke 1, 46-54, which says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for... He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. These two passages teach us and remind us that God is mighty. He's gracious to save his people in all places and at all times. God's plan of salvation calls for the wicked to be destroyed while God's humble people are exalted with Christ. We may not seem to have experienced this elevation in the dramatic ways that David was exalted, but in fact, every Christian has been lifted up from the ranks of sinners to be numbered among the children of God. God has pledged himself to overcome every opposition to our salvation, having already removed the guilt of our sin by sending his son to die on the cross. And God then sends the Holy Spirit to empower us for faith and godliness until that day finally comes when believers will be enthroned with Christ in heaven as co-heirs of the eternal life. The Apostle Paul writes that God's children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him in Romans 8, 17. Now, Christians can be absolutely sure of all of these blessings since God is faithful to keep his promises and always able to deliver on his word. And in light of God's commitment to grant us such a great salvation, Psalm 68.3 says, The righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. And so David calls us to worship simply because our God is worthy of our best praise. Psalm 68.4 says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. And so in addition to praising the Lord, we should imitate the example of God. Now, this is so important because Christians should take up the weapons of God's word in a prayer in order to scatter evil in the works of Satan. If God has drawn us to his own heart, we should be fathers to the fatherless, friends to the friendless, the protector of widows, and the healer of those with broken hearts. 
And whether in adopting children who lack a home, intervening to help in crisis pregnancy centers, or tutoring at-risk youth, Christians today have a multitude of ways in which to emulate the tender mercy of God, celebrating the joy of the marvelous grace of God that He has shown to us. Now let's consider our next point, out from Sinai. A great symphony or overture will present its main theme and then develop that theme in subsequent movements in this psalm. In Psalm 68, first stanza, which is verses 1 through 6, David presents his theme of God's great saving works. And the remainder of this psalm, it's going to show how God has achieved this salvation in the past and then praises God for what his people can be certain that he will do in the future. And looking on the past, David considers God's saving presence with Israel during the Exodus, going out before them, leading them safely until the moment when David established the ark on Jerusalem's holy Mount Zion. First, in Psalm 68, 7-10, David is going to present a collage of images from the Exodus that prove God's blessing in guiding and then caring for his people. Now, the convulsions that Israel experienced at Mount Sinai they not only declare God's holy majesty, but also display God's supernatural power. The protection of Israel during the Exodus requires similar disturbances of nature. In Psalm 68.8, it says, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel. Now, symbolizing both God's guidance and his throne as the source of divine, earth-shattering power, the Ark of the Covenant marched in the vanguard of the nation as Israel departed Sinai for the promised land of Canaan. And David remembers this in Psalm 68, 7. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, with the Ark leading, God guided his people through the wilderness in safety. And moreover, David celebrated the Lord providing all of their needs. Psalm 68, 9-10 says, Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And now David lumps together myriad instances of God's miraculous provision including the water that sprang from the rock, the manna that fell from heaven, and the quail that rained down to provide the meat. And since verse 8 of Psalm 68 is a quotation for the song of Deborah and, Ju and Judges 5, 4-5, David it may be referring here to the rainfall that aided Deborah and Barak's defeat from the chariot army of Caesarea. And now, David's point is that God's saving blessings are located among his people, despite the worldly troubles they may experience. God dwells among his people. And for that reason, the place of divine blessing is the often beleaguered pilgrim company of believers in Jesus Christ. Yes, God uh, disciplines and he trains believers for the sake of their high and holy calling, making them to walk through desert regions. But God goes with his people, personally guiding and tending to them. In fact, God's presence causes the place even of trial and difficulty to be a place where blessing experienced and strength is gained. And, and for many Christians, they really struggle with this because they think that, that God is far from them. And yet we know that the Lord is near as we see in Psalm 37, 
that God is near to the brokenhearted. And we see in Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 that, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That his character is sure and steady because Titus 1, 2 says that we have a God who never lies. God will always be consistent and he will always act in accordance with his revealed will in the word. Now, David alluded to this truth in Psalm 68, 4, calling for praise to him who rides through the deserts. God reigns, falls on the desert where his people walk. And in contrast, the worldly and even the unbelieving people, even though they may not pass through such tests and trials and may enjoy great earthly riches and comforts, nonetheless lead a barren life. But the rebellious David insists in verse 6 of this psalm, dwell in a parched land. The difference is God's care for his people versus his mighty opposition to his enemies. Psalm 68 is fulfilled today in the church where God's blessings are found in the ordinances of Christ and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's church, the most afflicted souls are watered by the word of God, strengthened by divine grace and prayer, and made to rejoice in the gathered worship of God's people. And by these same means of grace, however, the worldly and the unbelieving are burdened and afflicted. Spurgeon writes, Of the most soul-satisfying of the sacred ordinances, these witless rebels cry. What a weariness it is! And under the most soul-sustaining ministry, they complain. The foolishness of preaching. When a man has a rebellious heart, he must, of necessity, find all around him a dry land. And in addition to guiding and even providing for the people of God, God defended them by shattering the enemies who sought to destroy them uh, for their bar uh, progress. In verses 11 through 12 of Psalm 68, the Lord says this, The Lord gives the word, the women who announce the news are a great host. The king of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. These verses are among the most difficult to interpret in the entire Psalter, though the general meaning is not hard to see. We're going to talk about some of these difficulties. God decreed success over his enemies, and as a result, the woman stayed home from the battle, rejoiced to celebrate victory and to receive great spoil to enrich their homes. Now, David is perhaps noting the many songs of triumph sung by women during the journey from Egypt to Zion, including Miriam, Deborah, and Hannah. Their message tells of how foes who had seemingly so deadly and powerful have been scattered by the might of God, who saves his people. Moses' sister Miriam exulted over God's defeat of Pharaoh at the Red Sea in Exodus 15:21, saying, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And Deborah sang in, in Judges 5:31, So all your enemies perish, O Lord. And the difficulty of translation centers on Psalm 68, 13 through 14, which says, Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. And when the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Salam. And there are three questions to resolve this matter. What does it mean that the men lie among the sheepfold? What is the dove covered with silver? And what is the meaning of snow falling on Mount Salom? Calvin sees the men lying among the sheepfold as describing the ways that God's people may for a long time be afflicted in weakness, waiting for God to deliver them, though all the while they are by the hidden and mysterious power of God preserved unhurt in the midst of their afflictions. 
In contrast, H.C. Leipold understands these words as rebuking laggard Israelites, such as the Reubenites, who refused to enter into battle, even though God had promised them victory in Numbers 32:29. Now, as for the dove covered with silver, commentators suppose that this may have been a precious object of art that had been captured was famous at this time. And as for the snow falling on the Mount Salome, it's noteworthy that the name of this mountain, located in the north near Shechem, according to Judges 9.46, means dark one. So scholars theorize that when the enemy kings were scattered, the corpses of their soldiers would be like snow on a dark peak when seen from afar. Now, these details are debatable, but David's general meaning is crystal clear. God's will for his people's salvation will cause all opposition to be swept away. This result was repeatedly seen in the Exodus and in the centuries between Moses and David. In fact, David had personally witnessed God's saving of his people by crushing their enemies and bringing glory to himself. From these examples, Calvin concludes, We are taught by the mightiest preparations which the enemies of the church may make for its destruction shall be overthrown. And finally, David sees the arrival of the ark at Mount Zion as yet another proof of the way that God exalts the lowly in the presence of the mighty of the world. And in poetic language, David imagines the higher mountains of Bashan as looking with contempt on the lesser hill of Zion, resenting the honor accorded to so lowly a mount when God came to dwell there with the glory of his presence, saying in verses 15 through 16, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountains, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? And through this uh, contrast, we are reminded again of God's delight in his glorifying himself through the redemption of the low, the weak, the poor, and the downcast of the world. And just as God, David had been the least prominent of his father's eight sons when he was anointed as Israel's king in 1 Samuel 16, 6-13, so also Zion had nothing to commend it except for God's uh, sovereign election and grace. The Apostle Paul applied this same lesson, lesson to Christians today in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, which says this, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, so that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And James Boyce applies this biblical principle to those who may otherwise be discouraged, saying, if you think of yourself as being poor, weak, or unimportant, do not consider that as a handicap or a disadvantage, but instead as an opportunity for God to show his power in you. That's why we should not be uh, looking down on those who are going through hardships and said we should be coming alongside them since we as Christians indwell and seal by the Spirit have one who is the paraclete as Jesus teaches in John 15 and 16, one who comes alongside us. We have one who indwells us. Yes, he seals us by his Spirit and yet he also walks alongside of us. He goes before us. He is always with us. And that is why Galatians 6, 1 through 2 is so important because we are commanded to 
in obedience to God, because of the grace of God, we are called to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And Jesus tells us what the law of Christ is. And Matthew 22, 37 through 40, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is why we can strengthen one another in the Lord. And we need this help. We need God to help us, and he does. He, he's helped us by saving us. He's helped us by giving his spirit. He's helped us because, by, by his grace through the ministry of the spirit. He's using the word in prayer and uh, personally and corporately to help strengthen us so that we might be, as Romans 8, 28 says, conformed to the image of Christ more and more. And that's what makes this point by James Boyce so important. Because these opportunities, these situations of our lives, they are hand-tailored by God in our lives to help us to grow. His power is being made manifest in our weakness, as we're going to talk about towards the end. But for now, on to our next point. Exalted on high is our next point. Now, David's going to conclude the, this Psalm 68 with words that are later applied by the Apostle Paul to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the ascension of the Ark of the Covenant, David writes in Psalm 68, 17 through 18, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousand upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 68 was preached in the cathedral of Moscow after Napoleon's Grand Armani had been forced to retreat. The French host had been a most impressive sight as they marched into the Russian capital, especially since Napoleon had withheld his vaunted imperial guard from the recent battles of Bordona so that they entered the city in full strength and unbloodied. And yet this kind of earthly majesty pales compared to the legions of angels that attend the throne of God. Charles Spurgeon notes this, that the Lord of hosts could summon more forces into the field than all the petty lords who boasted their, in their armies. His horses of fire and chariots of fire would be more than a match for any earthly weapons. And knowing that God deploys a mighty array of thousands upon thousands of angelic servants, Believers have yet another reason to trust the Lord without fear. David concludes his poetic description of the ark's ascension to Mount Zion, saying in verse 18, You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, if the Lord God may dwell there. You see, David sees the spoils of Israel's conquest as emblems of God's victory over his enemies, to which were added the gifts of those who sought to honor the triumphant God enthroned on Mount Zion. Paul quotes these words of God as a conqueror leading his captives in reference to the ascension of Christ into heaven in Ephesians 4.8, which says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul's point is that the Ark of the Covenant exodus journey through the desert in company with God's weary people was symbolic of Christ's birth as a man and his life of poverty and weakness on the way to his return to heaven and glory of his resurrection and ascension. Moreover, just as Christ is greater than the Ark of the Covenant, so are his captives greater. 
Christ cast down, cast down the curse of sin, set aside the judgment of the law against his people, and even led death into captivity, so that it is no longer able to harm his blood-bought people. Many commentators make much of the fact that while David says that God received gifts from men, Paul writes that Christ gave gifts to men. This difference is not an error or a misquotation by the apostle, but rather his emphasis that Jesus received gifts so as to grant them to his people. Paul would go on to speak of the spiritual gifts that Christ would send to empower his church for ministry. Along with the gift of spiritual leaders in the form of apostles, evangelists, and pastor teachers in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. But chief among Christ's gifts is eternal life. And on the night of his rest, Jesus glorified the Father, rejoicing that he has given Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given to him in John 17, 2. It was to preach the gospel, this gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus that the ascended Lord gave preachers and witnesses to his glories. The gift of gospel preaching continues today, offering you and I the matchless gifts of forgiveness and eternal life if you will receive them through faith in the Savior and Lord, who has ascended in power and glory to the throne of heaven. Now, David wrote Psalm 68 out of his rejoicing for the ascension of the ark onto Mount Zion, knowing that in this section God had finally established his people in the rest of his promised land. He says in Psalm 68, 17, Sinai is now in the sanctuary, meaning that God was now present on Mount Sinai in the same way that Israel saw and heard his glory at Mount Sinai. From his holy habitation, God would rise up to protect his people as they trusted him and called on him in prayer. And in the midst of his people, the Lord would be the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows, as verse 5 says. As Christians look to heaven and they realize that our Lord and Savior has ascended there in glory and power, with authority granted to him over all things for the sake of the church, as we see in Matthew 28:18 and Ephesians 1, 20-22, we should experience the same joyful peace and satisfaction that David felt. With Jesus at the Father's hand, God is with us. With Jesus eternally presenting the wounds of his atoning uh, death for our sins, our forgiveness in Christ is secure forever. Adopted as God's children in Christ, we, we are forever certain to receive fatherly love and protection from above. And with Jesus interceding for us, our prayers are to be sure to be received at the throne of grace. If God proved his saving commitment to David through the Exodus, how much more has God proved the sufficiency of his grace to us through the offering of his son to die for our sins? Preaching on Psalm 68:18, John Newton summarizes our situation. Surrounded as we are with enemies and difficulties, we plead against every accusation and threatening that our head is in heaven. We have an advocate with the Father, a priest upon the throne, who, because he ever liveth to make intercession, is able to save to the uttermost. This is all our plea, and nor do we desire any other. You see, if we believe the truth of Christ death, resurrection, and ascension for our salvation, as David rejoiced in the ascension of the ark on Mount Zion, that belief will change everything about our lives. We will especially desire, as a result of these truths, to live in close communion with God, who has not only made his habitation among us, as the Lord did in Jerusalem, but actually come to dwell in us through the Holy Spirit whom Christ sends. 
However, we realize that the baby of Bethlehem, who suffered and was forsaken for our sin, is now enthroned as the Lord of glory. Surely, through faith, we must rejoice in serving the cause of Christ's glory, knowing that not only is he here with us now, but he will one day be with him. And soon Jesus will descend one last time to take us to himself so that we may ascend with him to dwell in the house of our heavenly father forever. And this is so, so important because as we talk about the, how this text helps us now, what we see is the Lord reigns. He is worthy of all of our praise, of all of our honor, of all of our lives. After all, this is the Lord who gives us life and breath. This is the Lord who sees the condition of our hearts. He sees the situations of our very lives. And we should not despise weakness, times where it feels like, you know what, I don't have the strength to carry on. These are the times to lean in to the means of grace. These are the times to find comfort in the promises of God and to realize and to trust the character of God. In fact, James 1, 2, James 1, 2 through 3 tell us to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that what that the testing of your faith produces patience. We, we see in Romans 8, for example, that the Spirit is helping us even in our weakness. Uh, he's helping us to put our sin to death. He's helping us uh, to grow in Christ. And the Lord is good. We need to remember this in times of suffering because it's, it's easy to forget this. And what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves. We need to give ourselves a good talking to with the word of God and with the grace of God revealed in the word. We need to do, as Jerry Bridges and many others talk about, preaching the gospel to yourself. That is taking your Bible in your hand and reminding yourself of the Bible's truths about who you are and who Christ is. And because the more that you think and the more that you reflect on the glories of Christ revealed in the Word, guess what? You're going to remind yourself. You're going to stir your affections afresh. And what this is going to do is it's going to remind you. It's going to remind you of who your Lord is, of who your Master is, of who your King is. He is not dead and gone. He is not defeated. He is an ascended Lord and Master, and He is soon returning. He reigns in power, unrivaled by all of the world's armies, all of the, all of the world's nuclear uh, weapons. They pale in comparison to the power of our God. Let that truth sink in you, into your heart, as you struggle in the midst, perhaps, of financial difficulty and marital challenges and on and on it goes the lord reigns this is a king of glory you can trust him he alone is enough for you let's pray father we thank you that you reign supreme over all things and that in the midst of our challenges in the midst of our lives you are a very present help in time of need as david prays in psalm 40 and 42 you are a rock of refuge. You are our source of comfort. You have sent the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter to walk alongside of us and not only to walk alongside of us, but to indwell us, to seal us and to empower us for the mission that you have given as you define in Luke nineteen ten, to seek and to save the lost. 
And as you also explain in Matthew 28, the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations. Lord, we, we are reminded of Hebrews 13.5 and verse 8 and 9 that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we are so thankful for your immutable, unchanging character. And we are so in need of it. As we go through this life, as we go through dark times, as we go through good times, may your praise be on our lips. And may we resolve steadfastly to remain and to continue on by your grace through the present help of of your grace and the Spirit of God living within us. May we finally arrive at that day persevering by God's grace and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to meet with you, to dine with you, to enjoy you forever and ever in heaven. And yet even now as we go through these things, you provide the very help that we need. You provide the very sustenance that we need. And Lord, may our lips be filled with your goodness. May, and even in the midst of weakness and times of challenge, Lord, may we, be, may we take ourselves by the hand and remind ourselves of your goodness, of your power, of your majesty, of your greatness. And Lord, may that remind us as well that other people need to know of your greatness, of, of the deliverance that only you can provide through your death and resurrection for their sins as you paid for them in their, in your, in their place and for their sins so that they can be forgiven and walk with you forever. So Lord, we thank you that your word is enough, that your the Savior and Lord is enough revealed in the word. Help us, Lord, to take ourselves by the hand and to remind ourselves of these truths and then help us to take these truths not only to our hearts, but to the hearts of those that we love, to our family, to our friends, and to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.